Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Fire and Flood, Eugene Linden states, uh, starts with the 1980s and tells the story of climate change decade by decade, looking at four clocks that move at different speeds, the reality of climate change itself, the scientific consensus about it, which always lags reality, public opinion and public will, which further lag, and perhaps most important, business and finance. Eugene Linden is an award-winning journalist and author on science, nature, and the environment. His previous book on climate change, Winds of Change, explored the connection between climate change and the rise and fall of civilizations. That was awarded the Grantham Prize, a special award of merit. For many years, Linden wrote about nature and global environmental issues for time, where he garnered several awards, including the American Geophysical Union's Walter Sullivan Award. Eugene Linden, thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm delighted to be here. I want to uh, start with just a a preface uh, taken from your preface. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You you say, for those who don't think climate change is a problem, this book is not for you. So (laughs) this book is directed to those who are already convinced. You say you won't convince those who aren't already convinced. And then you make an an interesting suggestion as to how those folks might spend their time. Uh, Start an insurance company. Why did you say that? Oh, I... Um, it was tongue-in-cheek, but if you don't think uh, climate change is real and a threat, then um, you could start an insurance company and move into all those coastal areas and fire zones where regular private insurers are moving out and and make a killing if climate change is not happening. Um, and so uh, it, it, it was tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, and right. The reason I said it's not for you if you haven't, <clears throat> if you don't believe in climate change is, you know, had 30 years of the science, 30 years of uh, exhaustive studies of every aspect of it, and um, nothing's going to convince you at this point if uh, if uh, if you don't accept the words of the and the consensus of the tens of thousands of uh, climate scientists around the world. And by the way, we'll get into this later. Uh, you say you know one one interesting factor lately is is the actions by those insurance companies right uh, the decisions by the insurance companies because that, that has not been the case is that there's been some you know inertia there uh, including among a lot of business uh, organizations oh, exactly I, back in 93 i wrote an article for time um, about the climate change in the insurance industry and and back then and this is like almost 30 years ago i expected uh, the insurance industry, insurance industry, to be the white knight of climate change because um, they live and die by pricing risk accurately, and uh, then they just turned out to be a very timid white knight. Um, you know, with seat belts and electrical standards, they were very aggressive, lobbying Congress uh, to 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 make the seat belts mandatory, et cetera. But they didn't do that, and. Um, then fast forward 2018 <clears throat> there's this 12.5 billion dollar fire called the Camp Fire in California and I read an article in the Times and it, the chief insurance lobbyist um was saying gee we're scrambling to un- understand this risk of climate change and fires and I read that and I thought what <laughs> the industry has been on the forefront of understanding that risk and what I realized when I read that later uh uh, piece was that I'd underestimated the momentum of business as usual. I'd underestimated the perverse incentives built into the system where insurers, of course, live and die by writing their revenue comes from writing policies. Um, and 
two things happened from 93. One, it turned out they're near genius at understanding and how to spread and offload risk. And um, secondly, um, because they can re- most policies are renewable on a yearly basis, they essentially felt they had a get-out-of-jail-free card where if things got too hot or <laughs> too wet, <clears throat> they could just not write policies. And so what that meant was that for years after the reinsurance, the, the, the part of the industry that reinsures catastrophic was, for years after they realized that climate change posed an existential risk to the industry, um, the retail end was still motivated to write policies as long as they could be backstopped. And so, yes, um, I expected the insurance industry to be doing some of the things they're doing now, um, 25 years ago. Um, the net effect of that, of course, has been a disaster because underpricing risk um, and offloading it, because when insurers pulled out of some of the more fraught areas, uh, the states have, and local authorities have moved in and picked up the risk. Uh, what that's done is encouraged many millions of people um, since climate risk first became apparent to move into zones that are at risk from either sea level rise or floods or windstorms or in the West fires. And, of course, we're seeing the consequences of that every year. You know, um, Arizona has now got the worst fire in its history going on. California, you know, five of the ten worst fires in its history occurred in one year alone. I think it was 2020. And so on and so, so on and so forth with Oregon and Washington. And, um now, of course, uh, that's a lot of insurers are trying to pull out of these areas. AIG pulled out of California, for instance, um, and that'll have its own consequences down the road. Um, but where had the insurance company played the role I expected them to play in '93, we would have probably had an ordinary, ordinary demographic migration away from some of the most at-risk areas. Instead, we had a migration into those areas, and um, that does set up a crisis down the road. So, uh, very related, I want to read this. Uh, This is from uh, Eugene Linden's book, Fire and Flood. This is Eugene Linden. The matrix of competitive pressures on today's businesses, both industrial and financial, incentivizes incentives uh, executives rather to drive off cliffs. Those careering toward the <laughs> cliff keep the pedal to the metal because it's almost never clear how far away the cliff lies, and that that matches up, you know, exactly with what uh, climate change. Even though you have that information, uh, you as a business uh, executive, you you keep your I guess your foot on the gas. Well, that's because that's how you get paid. <clears throat> and you're right. I mean, that, I'm, I try to make a point of this. It's not just the insurance industry. I mean, the way we do business incentivizes us to keep the pedal to the metal and right up to the edge of the cliff, if not off it. Um, uh, and <clears throat> it points to a blind spot um, in the way we do business in that we have this long-term risk that we can see. It may not be so long-term, by the way, since climate has been – Climate changes have been noticeable since the 90s. Um, and yet, um, let's say the risk of a Category 5 hurricane uh, doubles from 1 in 100 years to 1 in 50 years. In the next 50 years, you still have a, a 49 chances that it won't hit. So, yeah, these risks are real, and they, they change the, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the matrix of, of how we should be pricing those risks. But 
you, um, <clears throat> if you're living by quarterly profits, your incentive is to keep doing things until you can't. Um, and that, you know, we, we saw that in the 2008 financial crisis where once the banks started offloading the risk of the mortgages by selling them into these huge bonds, um, they were incentivized to keep writing mortgages even for people they knew couldn't repay them. And so one thing I try to stress in this book is that, you know, the, the incentives at the retail end of our economy give tremendous momentum to business as usual. Um, and that leaves us blind to threats like climate change. And so we don't do the orderly adjustments that might mute the downstream effects of climate change and set up uh, potentially catastrophic financial and ecological consequences. I want to go back and talk about the, the science, uh, science of the 1980s. So you, the, the book subtitle is A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. And you write that uh, uh, you know, there began to be inklings in the 70s, but the governing assumption was that those impacts of climate change would increase steadily, but only slowly. But in the 1980s, a series of uh, you know, uh, scientists came forward, started to come forward with a more dire picture. I wonder if you tell us a little bit about some of those. That's right. Um, the old <clears throat> concept of climate change was that it was like a dial, that it would, if it changed, it was going to change over hundreds, if not thousands of years at a very stately pace. And <clears throat> one of the reasons for that was that scientists uh, did not have the proxies that, that uh, with, with a precision to be able to see the rapid changes that actually occurred in the past. In other words, they could only see these, uh, these, these, these proxies, whether they, you know, um, seabed sediments and things like that. At the time, they might have an, a, a resolution of 100 years. And so if something happened faster than that, you, couldn't, you literally couldn't see it, even though it was in the record. Then a bunch of scientists, uh, American and uh, European, um, you know, began to look at um, in ice cores, um, and they proxies were developed with far more precision, uh, ratios of different isotopes of oxygen, for instance, uh, Willie Dansgaard um, coming up with that. Um, and so you could extract these ice cores from the Antarctic, from the Greenland, and you could see resolution almost uh, you know, on an annual basis, uh, what, how climate had changed. And the picture that emerged was a very different picture of how climate changes. It, the, the studies began in the late 80s, and they were published in 1993, European and American studies. And what they showed was that in the past, climate has changed extraordinarily rapidly and with great extremes, um, temperature drops of 10, 20, 30 degrees in a matter of just a few years. Um, and that picture, in other words, climate change was not a dial, but it was more like a switch and this notion of rapid climate change in the 90s began to uh, perfuse through the scientific community. And actually, it was a paradigm shift. Until, uh, by I was in Antarctica in 1998, um, and it was much discussed, but it still wasn't the consensus by 1990. By 2003, the National Academies of Sciences was writing that it indeed was a paradigm shift in how climate changed. What that meant... Um, to the scientists was that, you know, you, once a climate, rapid climate change event begins, you don't have time to adjust. 
It's not like you have decades and decades for to, to sort of assess and take action, because once a rapid of climate change event, you could see very rapid and extreme changes in just a matter of a few years. And indeed, that's what we may be seeing right now um, in the fact that we have these almost every year is in the top 10 warmest years ever recorded since they go reliable records going back about 150 years. So we are scientists actually discovered rapid climate change, even as we may be in the beginnings of a rapid climate change event. And with whipsaws and temperatures, more intense storms, all the things we're seeing around today, including many of the ugly surprises. I mean, back um, in the early 90s, I, I started writing about climate change in 88. Back in the early 90s, nobody was talking that I read about how shifting climate might actually lead to increased duration of storms um, because of the lower, lesser contrast between the extreme higher latitudes, the Arctic and the lower latitudes, leading to a slowdown into, uh, in, in, the, in the jet stream, leading to kinks in the jet stream that would lead, cause storms to linger for days at a time. Um, and so we, you know, 30 years ago, if you had 10 inches of rain, there'd be articles about it in the New Yorker. Today, you have storms with 40 and 50 inches of rain, mainly because these storms are just lingering. Another ugly surprise, of course, is the rapid intensification of storms, um, where we see storms go from Category 1 hurricane to Category 5 in a matter of 24 hours. That's extraordinary. So what we, you know, even the scientists are put in the impossible position of trying to understand an event even as it's happening. Um, that is a new paradigm for understanding science, uh, climate change, um, and and so yes, uh, that was that. What happened in the 80s and early 90s was fundamental to one uh, a new understanding of act exactly how climate change. But secondly, to convincing the scientists that um, that change was afoot um, and that humans were causing it. By the way. Uh, yeah, and you say these four clocks, there's a reality of climate change. Then there is a lag to the scientific consensus, right? And then an even bigger lag to public uh, uh, opinion, public will. Um, but that that was accelerated, uh, at least to the scientific consensus, in, in the 1980s. I want to talk about this. This is surprising to me. I'll, I'll quote this. You talk about the IPCC, which, uh, you know, is governments, right? Scientists and governments trying to get together to come up with a solution. Um, you say the corporate lobbyists who wanted to thwart any momentum to act on global warming may well have thought the IPCC was a gift from God. The IPCC was its own worst enemy. Why? Well, what happened was it was formed in the late 80s, and it was meant to bring together the best scientific, uh, thousands of scientists, 8,000, I think, around the world joined together. But it also included policy uh, makers and governments. Um, and to me, that was a fatal flaw because... These documents are thousands of pages long, these assessments that they've put together, the sixth one's coming out. Um, what, um, but nobody reads the whole document, not the policymakers, scientists may. Um, they read the uh, summaries for policymakers, well, you know, these, uh, these executive summaries at the beginning of each of these uh, assessments. And there, there is where um, those who would delay action found enormous opportunities in exploiting an inherent scientific caution to go beyond the data. For instance, 
um, back in the first assessment in 1990, very few stations um, in the permafrost uh, for research and collecting data. Um, and so even though scientists knew back then that the permafrost, which covered 60% of the Arctic um, landmass, um, is uh, stored billions of tons of very potent greenhouse gases, uh, both carbon and methane, um, that they knew if it melted, it would release these things because there weren't the resource stations to uh, see it. They, it was underplayed in the earlier assessments about the role of the Arctic and perhaps producing an unstoppable feedback loop where perma, uh, warming melts permafrost, releases gases, warms further, melts more permafrost, etc. Couldn't talk about that, even though it was a possibility in the in the uh, summaries for policymakers, um, and so the those who would delay action, which included and in that time most of the business community led by the fossil fuel, fuel community, could actually round the edges of these summaries and make them seem incredibly bureaucratic and bland, with many calls for further studies um, and underplaying a lot of the potential effects of climate change to the degree that many of the worst-case scenarios from these early assessments um, are now the conventional wisdom today. They don't use worst-case, by the way, because they use uppercase. Again, an example of scientific caution, not wanting to put a number as a worst-case. But the point, uh, the point being that these early reports were gave plenty of ammunition to those who say, we have time, and I'll give you a specific example of that. Um, an economist named William Nordhaus from Yale um, was trying to model the effects of climate change, one of the early economists trying to do that. Um, and he took uh, from the IPCC report that the thermal inertia of the oceans was going to absorb a lot of the heat and delay any signal of climate change for many decades into, the, into this century. Um, and, and came up with estimates for future damage to the U.S. GDP by 2100 that were ridiculously small, a quarter percent in one instance, one percent in another. And he's a distinguished scientist. He, he actually won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for this work, which astounded me. Um, but um, no one is going to jump out of their chair and say, we got to take action if they hit the GDP is 1%. There's two telling things that um, at the same time he was doing these studies, he pulled a lot of economists whose other estimates were in line with his. When he pulled scientists on what the future economic impact of climate change was, their estimates were between 10 and 30 times the estimates of damage um, that the uh, of the economists. And by the way, the scientists were much closer to the mark. Recent studies have shown that, you know, um, damage, future damage from climate change runs into tens of trillions of dollars. But then, okay, so Nordhaus publishes these papers, and then libertarians like William Niskanen of the Cato Institute back then testify before Congress and say, well, a distinguished economist says that, one, we have a lot of time, and two, the impacts look to be quite, quite small, so let's not take any drastic action right now. And that's indeed one of the things that happened. Um, and then, uh, but it, so in any case, yes, the IPCC was not helpful. I have to say that in recent years, they've completely turned around. Um, 
the scientific reports were always very good, um, with one particular exception. But in any case, in recent years, I'd say in the last 10 years, the IPCC has been sounding the alarm quite strongly and indeed did so just a couple of weeks ago with uh, one of their new working group assessments. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, when we uh, come back, we'll uh, have more with Eugene Linden. Uh, the book is Fire and Flood, subtitle A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, the oil industries and other industries uh, pushback, which uh, became quite successful. Uh, and we'll get to, uh, of course, the future. Um, Mr. Linden does have some recommendations um, for, uh, for future action and uh, much more, of course. Fire and Flood, Eugene Linden, more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're talking with Eugene Linden. Uh, his new book is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change, 1979 to the Present. So, Eugene Linden, um, you uh, you say in your book that uh, by the 1970s, major oil companies had confirmed for themselves the basic science of climate change, but predictably, they're, when they feel the need, they're going to push back. Uh, they didn't feel the need, uh, I think, what, until about the 1990s, and then uh, came groups like uh, Global Climate Coalition. Uh, tell me a bit about this, this pushback, which at times has been very successful. Well... <clears throat> Industry is, uh, various industries have developed a playbook for trying to delay action on, uh, on coming regulations. And uh, the, the playbook that was eventually used by the <clears throat> fossil fuel industry uh, had its origins uh, in attempts to try and delay action on regulating cigarettes and tobacco. And then, um, if you remember the ozone hole crisis of the 70s, it was further optimized, um, and the elements of the playbook were um, you know, question the science, question the consensus, question the motives of the science scientists, um, and uh, you know talk about great economic cost of taking action and loss of jobs, but most of all, calling for further study and saying we have time, because of course when you call for study, it sounds like you're being responsible. And when you say we have time, if you say we have time, Americans and most people around the world don't act until there's a crisis right upon them. Um, but uh, And so saying we have time is a perfect way to delay action. Well, they mobilized this delay action on ozone and were quite successful uh, delaying action by uh, 11 years. <laughs> but they did a veritable blitzkrieg um, when it came to climate change, doing all of those things, and they, as you said, were quite successful. I'll give you an iconic example that I take from that I mentioned in the book. Uh, going way back to '88, uh, George H. W. Bush, the first Bush president. People forget, but he ran saying he was going to be the environment president. Um, and he famously said, um, those of you worried about the greenhouse effect should consider the White House effect. And he promised to have a conference on climate change in his uh, very first, one of the very first things he did, would take uh, during, uh, once, he, once he assumed office. Well, sometime between um, when he was running for office and when he became president, the lobbyist effect came into play. 
And he did indeed eventually have a conference on energy, but global warming was not allowed to be mentioned in the conference, which would be akin to having a conference on pandemics and not being able to talk about COVID. So what you see there was the power of the lobbying effect, but it wasn't just affecting the president and the Congress. Um, it also sowed doubt in the public. And um, this, I think, was one reason that the public has been misinformed about climate change for 30 years. If the scientific consensus dwell, uh, developed in the 90s um, and solid, solidified the near unanimity, um, the public is way back, um, and even today is way back in the 80s, thinking the threat is off in the future, even as it's upon us now. For instance, Gallup did a poll in 2018, 45% of those polled said that uh, climate change would not be affect their lives in their lifetime. Um, now, what happened in the late 90s, uh, now first it was seen as a threat to jobs and business was pushing back, and, you know, and confusing the science, et cetera, et cetera, basically throwing sand in the gears of taking action. In the late 90s, something else happened which was even more pernicious if you wanted to take action on climate change, and that was the issue became politicized. With the passage of the Kyoto Treaty, every, virtually every nation except the United States endorsed it, um, business interests said, gee, maybe there's going to be real action. Um, they needn't have worried, by the way. But, um, and so they... Again, they, they, they threw a new thing into the book, and that was to sort of say that action on climate change was part of a liberal agenda. Once an issue becomes politicized, the facts don't matter. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> it's, if the messenger is deemed to be illegitimate, no one's going to listen to it. And then that is evidenced by the, the polling, um, that 45% figure something like 65% of Democrats felt that climate change would affect them in their lifetimes. Only 16 or 17% of Republicans felt that. And so you could see the politicization of the, of the message. We have a perfect example of uh, a scientific uh, issue becoming politicized right now in COVID, um, where that split is identical but reversed. <clears throat> Um, the 65% of Republicans think that COVID has been overblown as a threat and only 16 or 17% of Democrats. Again, that issue became politicized almost equally. And it's there you're talking about an issue of a virus. It's not, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be a political issue. Neither should climate change, which is an issue of geophysics. Um, the prime minister of, uh, of a former prime minister of Australia did remark, uh, he said, they've taken an issue of physics and turned it into one of values. So over the last 20 odd years, the issue has been politicized. And, and that's one of the reasons that I, I say at the beginning of the book, I'm not going to convince you because I am in the eyes of those who see it as a political issue. I'm probably an illegitimate messenger, but um, the facts are the facts. Um, in any case, what it's meant is that the public has been way behind the scientists, and the fossil fuel industry led the charge, but at the beginning it was joined by almost the entire uh, business community. 
What's happened, though, is over the years, um, the, uh, the multinationals and the giant financial institutions have peeled off from that coalition of business interests, leaving only, um, you know, the sort of hardcore coal and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and oil and gas industry um, as, as proponents of this denial playbook that has been so effective in preventing action on climate change. And now the business community, by the way, is in the process of rapid changes. The major financial institutions and corporations who for years saw regulation of climate change as a threat to profit now see climate change itself as a threat to business. And that's a fundamental and important change. Yeah, I want to follow up with that. You you say, just a preface to, to the question, you say in the 2000s, the aughts, as we sometimes call them, the climate clock itself accelerated. Uh, offering increasingly clear evidence for climate change, climate's changing. Public concern initially ticked upward, then stalled, as you've been uh, saying, in part uh, because of this pushback campaign. And then you say, then came the fire and fires and floods. It was increasing evidence, right? Uh, at least to, the, to those who are accepting that evidence. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the effects of that you know, in the in the tens and the teens. They were just coming out of. Um, so, yeah, start with, with with where you left off, the business community. There, there's been some shifting there, you say. Absolutely. And a lot of them are being quite proactive. There's a lot of greenwashing going on, too, which is like pretending to take action or to saying you're taking action when you're really not doing something. Because as I, I try to point out, um, even within an industry like the insurance industry, you have those pushing to write, even as those are saying it's going to you know, this is going to be a catastrophic loss. Well, you know, a lot of industries, one end of the industry will join. I, I think I mentioned one company where one part is, is aggressively pushing a move into renewables and another part of the same company has joined an anti-regulatory uh, lobbying group um, to try and delay action on pushing renewables. Um, so, you know, industries, even uh, even a corporation is is rarely a monolith and there are different competing interests in it. I do think that there there is this sea change going on where uh, you know, the recognition that, A, climate change is a, a real threat and to the tens of trillions of dollars of, G, of GDP, not that pathetic figure of 1%. Um, and secondly, it is very near at hand. I mean, keep in mind that the issue first got presidential attention in the Carter administration. Um, and then Reagan came in, and um, we, he couldn't have cared less about the issue. Then um, Clinton came in um, and um, wanted to do something, but famously, and, and well, at least I heard him say it, said that he couldn't get ahead of the American public, and in essence threw the ball back to the uh, to the politicians and the and uh, and others to try and mobilize public uh, uh, attention on it. The business community, the uh, particularly the, the the multinationals and the large financial institutions, are today ahead of the public in terms of recognition that um, we need to take action uh, in lowering emissions. Um, and uh, this is just realism. Back in 1990, when the issue first was really, uh, people began to try and address it, um, climate was already changing. In the um, 32 years since, emissions have gone up 60%. It was already a problem in 1990. Emissions are now 60% higher. 
that's that much bigger a rock has to be pulled up, pushed up that much steeper a hill in that much shorter time. Um, we the feeling in 1990 we had we had a lot of time. Well, it's 30 years later. We don't have much time. Um, the ProPublica, the Rhodium Group, and the New York Times um, did a study of every county in the United States. The Rhodium Group did the study, and they had five different uh, climate effects, and they would aggregate the count what what the risk was for in every county for all these different effects. And if you had a, a multiple, you know, risks for climate change, you got a very high number. Um, some of the wealthiest counties in the United States, Miami-Dade, Palm Beach County, the, the county that houses Hill, Hilton Head in, uh, in South Carolina, some counties in California and Texas, are at extremely high risk for extreme financial consequences of climate change. And it's not decades off anymore. It's uh, 2040 to 2060. Um, you know, and those with kids in elementary school, their kids are going to be facing these risks um, when they're in their 20s. Um, and then the other thing is, is that even if all the nations on the planet abided by the Paris Agreement, <clears throat> which we just rejoined, temperatures would still be expected to be rise by between 2.7 and 3.7 degrees Celsius, say, say three, 3 degrees Celsius, by 2100. Um, <clears throat> that's, um, what, seven degrees Fahrenheit. Temperatures haven't been that high on this planet um, in over 2.7 million years, before the Ice Age. Plenty of life back then, but there weren't any humans. Estimates um, out of the IPC reports, the newest reports, um, are like crop yields, global crop yields for, for, uh, for maize, for corn, might drop by 27%, um, for wheat by 22%, by rice a uh, somewhat lower number. But you can't add 2 per billion people between now and 2100, and it might, might, might even be more, and have less food and not have a crisis. So I think a lot of businesses have recognized this. The problem is, as I mentioned, that the issue has become politicized, and what that has meant is that no politician will run it, uh, you know, will take leadership on it. And so we see every, every moment something happens, like the Ukraine invasion, all of a sudden people are uh, blaming um, those who want to push for renewables and saying we need more drilling uh, for fossil fuels. And so even though we face this, we cannot get to 2100 and have a three-degree rise and hope to not have billions of people at risk of death. Um, but um, any time we start to take action and the price in some event, like the Ukraine invasion raises prices or other event raises prices on fossil fuels, this calls for more drilling, and the date at which we begin to wean ourselves from fossil fuels gets pushed back further into the future. There is some hope, however. Um, the uh, high oil prices, best the best way to lower oil prices is to reduce demand. And the shift, uh, most, most oil goes for transportation, and the shift for renewables becomes, uh, the argument for them becomes that much more compelling um, if, um, if, if there's 6 and $7 a gallon uh, gasoline um, with renewables, you know, you, you're getting uh, a fraction of that as a cost um, the, um, uh, with an EV, for instance. Um, of course, then, if 
now with the supply chain disruptions, they're having a hard time even meeting the demand for EVs as it exists right now, and it's ramping up quite rapidly. But in any event, um, you know, we do face this future. We have to avoid it. Business recognizes that. The big businesses do. Um, but we still have this problem of the issue being seen as one of politics rather than physics. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment with Eugene Linden. Uh, The book is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Eugene Linden. His latest book is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to uh, Present. Gene Linden, I want to get to some recommendations that you have first. Uh, you made a comparison between the pandemic and uh, climate change a little earlier. Uh, I just want to read this uh, from your book. Uh, you say only collective action can resolve either one, talking about pandemic and, and, uh, and uh, climate change. And you go on to say that uh, in the United States, the response to COVID suggests that the nation is not ready to grapple with any global uh, problem. That's And you, you, you said just before the break, um, we don't have much time. What um, <laughs> I guess the, that would uh, tend to lead to pessimism. I don't know if you're pessimistic about this. Well, I am <clears throat> realistic, I, I think. Um, no, we haven't done anything um, or not much. I mean, a lot of cities and towns and everything else have done something. But what we've noticed over the years is that, um, and this is the lesson of the Kyoto, the tragedy of the Kyoto process, was that, it left out the big emerging economies, China, India, et cetera. Um, and um, as a result, those uh, China is went from being half U.S. emissions to twice U.S. emissions and is now larger than the entire G20 and EU nations combined in terms of emissions. India is third in the world. It went from being about eighth in the world. Um, and, and so... One uh, one thing is, is that we need collective action. We can't have ex- and, and, um, excuses. I I come up with uh, 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 there's a couple of things I think will happen. One is that as climate risks begin to pri- the price of this begins to be transferred to the taxpayers and to homeowners, people even regardless of their policy politics are going to realize that climate is a risk and it's an economic risk. Um, and um, that probably will change. Consumers are 70% of the economy. Um, if consumers, if ordinary people, just took consideration of climate risk in their purchasing um, habits and in their lifestyles, that would have an enormous impact, not just on the business and finance community, large segments of which are already there, but it would have an impact on the politics. I mean, one of the things that uh, I find so uh, disturbing is that people treat mentioning uh, climate change uh, at the politicians as like a third rail. Um, in the debates, Trump, uh, uh, Biden said he called for an end of fracking in Pennsylvania, um, and uh, Trump jumped on it and said, you've just lost Pennsylvania, and then Biden's staff does this furious backpedaling, and this is 2020. <laughs> You shouldn't have to be afraid to say we need to start changing our habits with regard to fossil fuels, given what we're already seeing in terms of 
um, three trillion dollars of damage in the last more than that in the last decade, according to Aon, the, the insurance giant, from weather-related disasters. That's double the previous decade, and this decade is probably going to be double that. At what point do these costs impinge on people's consciousness? I would say it's already beginning to happen. Um, so pricing itself may drive the public regardless of the politics. That's that's a hope, uh, oddly enough. Um, and uh, I think the we need collective action in the sense of something, an agreement that includes all nations and actually requires a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, something that I think can be easily achieved. Um, For instance, China, the world's largest emitter, is the 11th worst, meaning there's only, uh, there's 180 nations that are more energy efficient than China. It could, excuse me, it could achieve reductions simply by improving its energy efficiency. Energy efficiency has accounted for most of the reductions in the developed nations over the last 30 years. And the reason it's so easy to do that is it's profitable. You make money by doing it. Homeowners save money by becoming more energy efficient. So it's a moneymaker, and it would be a moneymaker for China. And so that you have the biggest nation on earth that um, could then, of course, meet this obligation and lower its emissions really without much cost, if any cost, and maybe even a positive cost to its economy. Brazil could do that um, by by, um, just cutting illegal deforestation, something it ought to be doing anyway to preserve what remains of the Amazon. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I, at the end of the book, I propose a uh, universal tariff. Um, and while it would be anathema to uh, libertarians and free marketers, I don't think it would be uh, lead to trade wars like previous tariff regimes because it would be universal. There would be no comparative advantage. Um, but secondly, what I've seen and what others have seen over the past 30 years is that complex agreements – lead to endless negotiations and inaction. Um, Exemptions lead to what's called the free rider problem, where everybody else goes by the rules, and uh, if you're an exempt nation, then you do what you want, as we've seen with China, with regard to coal. Um, And so I I do think there are things that... um, and, And then the third design feature, I think, needs to... is that whatever we do collectively needs to be deployable now. We can't be negotiating um, for another 10 years. Um, the Kyoto process basically took 17 years before it went into effect. We don't have 17 years um, at this point to uh, begin to bring down um, emissions. Um, and so with those features, I propose a universal tariff. If somebody has a better idea, I'm all for it. But we need we need collective action, and it is something, as I say in the book, that we're very, very bad at. Um, um, And so we need to get better at it, Um, and maybe pricing will drive us to it. I want to say one last thing here. Um, I use COVID as a negative example of of, of showing how an issue becomes politicized. There's also a positive lesson from COVID, Um, and that is that The prior vaccine, I think, took seven years from development to when it was deployed. With COVID, 
numerous nations managed to come up and deploy a vaccine within a year. And it shows what the science technological community can do when highly motivated in an emergency. Well, I think the climate situation is an emergency, and we've already seen tremendous amounts of money flowing towards innovation and renewables with results. Um, and so I think we can actually deploy carbon-free technologies far more rapidly than anyone expects. We've already seen that happen with uh, the explosion in EVs around the world, which is, oddly enough, partly a factor of the explosion of smartphones, where uh, battery innovators had to come up with longer-lasting batteries um, <clears throat> and uh, in and compact batteries to fit inside phones. Well, some of the lessons learned during that revolution have been applied to the EVs, and as a result, EV uh, electronic vehicles have expanded far more rapidly than many people anticipated in the first decade of, of the 2000s. So there is hope. About three minutes left. Uh, I want to end on the, the, your third clock, uh, which is public opinion and po political will. It always lags the reality and the scientific consensus, and there there have been ups and downs. We've talked about pushback, organized pushback. How, how do you think how do you think that gets changed uh, to a sufficient degree? Public opinion, but political will. Um, pricing is the only thing that I see that will break through the politicization of it. Um, once uh, you know, Florida as a state is probably more vulnerable than any other state in the union to the combined effects of fire. Uh, of climate change, with the exception of maybe fire. Uh, and yet, um, it's had a series of governors who have basically been either blasé or downright hostile to taking action or even mentioning climate change. Rick Scott, the previous governor, I think, wouldn't, wouldn't allow it to be mentioned in, in, in state documents. Um, I think the residents of Florida are going to have a harsh lesson in terms of the cost of climate change, as its multiple effects begin to uh, have an economic expression, and that is going to change the politics. Um, but I don't think, um, you know, that anything short of reality is going to um, change minds on climate change. And that's a tragedy, because usually when <laughs> reality becomes that expensive, it's too, too late to head off real, real disaster. Um, so I do think the public is catching up. The issue public, that is the people in the, in, the, in the public who are willing to act on an issue, is rising on climate change. The young people particularly are well aware and way ahead of their parents on the threats of the issue because they're going to be living it. And if they ever actually voted in terms of what they thought, they could have a profound effect on the politics of climate change. And maybe there's hope in that. Uh, finally, just a couple of minutes here. Uh, what's the top takeaway? What do you what do you want people to take away from the book? Um, that it is an astonishing thing that we've known about this threat for well over thirty years, and yet have done very little, and still treated as a hypothetical, a theoretical, or a political thing, and not just a matter of physics that we could have dealt with, and we still have a narrowing window to deal with. The fact of the matter is we don't have time. If people take away from the book that we have to do something on this and we don't have time, then there are things that you can do right now as an individual. Just think about your purchases. Think about 
shifting uh, to an EV. Think about um, uh, a, a heat pump, other ways of, uh, of, uh, of non-fossil fuel ways of, uh, of uh, delivering the services that we used to rely on fossil fuel for. People can change, and they have changed uh, and are changing, but we need to have the recognition that this is not something to be discussed or to be studied. It is something where we need to act now. That's the message I hope people take away. Well, the book is Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to Present. Eugene Linden is an award-winning journalist and author on science, nature, and the environment. His previous book on climate change, Winds of Change, uh, was awarded the Grantham uh, Prize uh, Special Award of Merit. Um, and the new book, as I said, is called Fire and Flood. That's out and available now. Eugene Linden, thank you so much for taking time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk about journalism uh, tomorrow. We'll have a young journalist who uh, will talk about uh, the the perils, the, the the risks and rewards of going into journalism. We'll also have Matthew LaPont, a professor of journalism, uh, on with her. And uh, that is the program for tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today.